accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Let's watch Happened There's to no him. entity, and I added that. Do re mi. Bye. 
lucha contra leyes racistas. Contra leyes racistas en Arizona, allá arriba, allá arriba. Allá arriba, allá arriba, allá arriba. Hey, yo no soy de la migra. Yo no soy de la migra. Lo seré, Good morning, mutineers. This is the Labor and Love Radio Show on Mutiny Radio. A true community arts center in the middle of San Francisco's Mission District. 
on 2781 21st Street. Come on down and find your voice at Mutiny. Mutiny Radio it is, and this is the Labor and Love Show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road, of course, they don't want you to join together. They don't want you to have unions or associations or work in concert with the other workers around you. Your labor makes them rich. Good morning, everybody. I am the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan. And this is the Labor and Love Show. And today, well, let's see what we've got. Of course, we lost a giant in the struggle for freedom, Mr. John Lewis. And we'll have a little feature about his life and work. Lewis was one of the very first people in 1960 in that phase of the of the movement that sort of began in 1960 in North Carolina and other places in the South where students, black and white, would get together and go into a segregated lunch counter, like at a Woolworths or something like that. There used to be lunch counters there. And uh, sat down together, which at that time, of course, was against the law in those areas where they did it. Jim Crow laws said, no, you can't do that. And the police kind of looked the other way while local thugs, young white men, just beat up the demonstrators, threw them down on the floor, slugged them, slapped them, punched them. And the cops sort of looked the other way. Well, ultimately, the uh, the project was successful. But we'll, we'll see m- more about uh, the work. We've got Francesca Fiorentini, Six Ways the Coronavirus Proves Bernie Sanders right. We'll see about that. And Ramsey, Francesca Ramsey, is talking about what's her excuse for being racist. People have accused her of being anti-white. Concessions and how to beat them on labor notes. Concessions, that is uh, your, your... boss, your employer coming to you and saying times are so bad I'm going to need you guys to take a cut in pay or a cut in benefits or longer hours or whatever. On Radio Labor we've got a a feature about Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company in the Philippines firing uh, union leaders. 
when they tried to protect employees during the pandemic. Then we'll have our labor beat. Several interesting articles. How many of you have heard of Lemon Grove? Lemon Grove was the first civil rights case involving parents and children in schools. 1930, in many ways, proceeded proceeded the uh, 1954 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Topeka. Lemon Grove. Marciez, we'll play the Marciez. This is French. Independence Day, July 14th, the day in 1789 when the crowds, the people of Paris, overtaxed, hungry, going broke, going crazy, broke down the walls of the Bastille, which is a prison in Paris for political prisoners. And that also happens to be Woody Guthrie's birthday. We played that first song by Ry Cooter today, the Do Re Mi Woody Guthrie song about how migrants from the East and the Midwest who had lost their farms and homes came out to California and how they were met and how they were met. We ain't got the Do Re Mi. That's too bad. We ain't got the do re me. We had um, Michelle Nezuchero with Turn Me On. Remember those days? Those days of intimacy? Those days when you could hug and kiss and do everything without uh, worrying so much about what was going to happen because. And then we. We ended it with Las Cafeteras and their song, La Bamba Rebelde. Their version of La Bamba with their very strong determination as Chicanos to make the world better. Chris Rock reads a classic piece of writing by James Baldwin, a letter to my nephew. What police really believe from Vox, a former police officer, longtime police officer and army veteran, talks about the mindset of the men in blue. Then I want to listen to... uh, State of the Union, which is the latest from Public Enemy. And we've got a a guest composer and singer. Um, today, someone I've known off and on for a long time, Chuck Doja. Let's take a look at that and some of his... Compositions, one especially 
which will play for you. As I said, we're going to... And then Mr. Block. Who's Mr. Block? Well, Mr. Block was a cartoon character who acts from the early 1900s, work of an IWW cartoonist, who acts exactly like Mr. Trump's fans, who has the same concerns. He's afraid the IWW is a little too radical. But we'll start it all off with a life of James, uh, John Lewis, a civil rights hero, if there is such a thing. I mean, we tend to uh, take these situations and romanticize them and turn them into uh, yes and no moments. The work of you know, famous people, people who are better and different from us. Lewis's, Lewis's main quality when you study about his life was that he was a regular guy, like Bern um, President Obama said, John's tough, but he's just a little guy. A man who, did, who never wavered in doing the work to undo horrible sin of slavery and its aftermath. And labor history in two. We'll get to that. Let's listen to John Lewis here, the life of U.S. civil rights hero John Lewis. Age of America's civil rights movement, there was a king front and center. There was nearly always a young prince alongside John Lewis. The son of sharecroppers, he began protesting when just 20 years old, there on the march on Washington, on the buses in Birmingham, and on that bridge in Selma. And generations from now, when parents teach their children what is meant by courage, the story of John Lewis will come to mind. An American who knew that change could not wait for some other person or some other time. Lewis was born in 1940 in rural Alabama, when life in the South was dictated by Jim Crow laws which enforced racial segregation. When he started college in Nashville, the movement to end all that was beginning, and Lewis joined the sit-ins, when activists would seat themselves at white-only lunch counters in protest at segregation. Faced with beatings, they would never retaliate. I was sitting there demanding a God-given right and my soul became satisfied that I was right in what I was doing. I could no longer be satisfied or go along with an evil system. In 1961, he became one of the original 13 Freedom Riders, traveling on Greyhound buses through the South to force the desegregation of public transport. I felt good. I felt happy. I felt liberated. I was like a soldier in a nonviolent army. Lewis was beaten in North Carolina, knocked unconscious in Alabama, and jailed in Mississippi. Such attacks in the face of peaceful protest shocked the world and forced Americans to confront the true nature and extent of racism in their nation. At 23, he helped organize the March on Washington, where Dr. King preached his American dream. Lewis spoke as well, 
He was until now the only surviving speaker from that day. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Soon Lewis and others would turn to voting rights, trying to help African Americans to register when so many barriers were placed in their way. They planned to march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama, yet they were met on the Edmund Pettus Bridge by state troopers who charged at them. And who was at the front line, taking yet another beating for his cause? They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, and bullwhips, trapping us with horses. This is me here. Fifty years later, Lewis returned in a different time with a very different president. If someone had told me when we were crossing this bridge that one day I would be back here introducing the first African-American president, I would have said, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, you don't know what you're talking about. By then, Lewis had moved on from his street-fighting days, serving in Congress for more than 30 years. His causes remained consistent. Even his methods were the same. In 2016, angered by Congress's inability to enact gun reform, he staged a sit-in on the House floor. How many more mothers how many more fathers need to shed tears of grief? Never fearful of speaking his mind, Lewis boycotted the inauguration of George W. Bush and Donald Trump. For him, they were two Republican presidents bookending a leader who meant far more, a black US president. And so it was Lewis who was the first to embrace Barack Obama as he walked out to make history in 2009. Why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant, can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. One thing with Barack Obama, he's not a, a victim of the scars and the stains of racism. He, Which you he, are. We are. Those of us who grew up in America, those of us who grew up in, in in the 40s and the 50s, who tasted the bitter fruits of segregation and racial discrimination, we bear those scars. We are victims. Why is it an advantage for him perhaps not to bear those scars? Well, Barack Obama is a, is a composite of, of the best of America. Uh, he, uh, he is free with his background and with his makeup, he's, he never experienced segregation and racial discrimination. He never saw those signs at water fountains, at bus station and train station. He never had to go to the back of the bus. In December 2019, Lewis revealed his latest, most deadly battle, pancreatic cancer. It was ultimately the fight he never won. But think of the battles he did, of the rights he won, of the America he molded. Another civil rights foot soldier has fallen, but the path John Lewis trod is one rich with victories and lessons for America's future. Okay, that was uh, a short documentary, if you will, on the life of John Lewis. And it seems to me that Lewis was 
somebody who showed up, who took the beatings, who stood on the front line, looked eye to eye with the police and the uh, white supremacist forces, and simply was so brave. He went, he said, okay, what have you got? Let's see what you got. I'm right, you're wrong. You know that. This was the essence of the civil rights movement. Lewis later became a uh, congressman. And uh, something I was reading his biography last night, a strange thing that happened in 1980, I believe. He and um, Julian Bond, Georgia state legislator, were running against one another for a, for a representative seat, which Lewis won by using questionable tactics. He and uh, Bond had been friends, but they ended up running against one another. I can't understand that. Someone who was controlling the strategy of the time, you know, really slipped up. They never should have run against one another controversial campaign. Okay, John Lewis and the word soldier really fits him. Let's have a listen here. Here's Chuck D with his latest. It's called State of the Union. I can't believe China's blaming the US for this whole virus. Like that. Don't like Chinese knives. Go! 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 Just go! My tail, ask the beta, prime time primo, rhyme time crime, like no other in this lifetime. White House killer, dead in lifelines, broke this joke out, or die trying. Unprecedented, demented, many presidented, Nazi Gestapo, dictator, defendant. It's not what you think, it's what you follow. Run for them jewels, drink from that bottle. Another four years, gonna gut your hollow, gun it out, dried up, broken, can't borrow. Shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. In fact, I'm God. I got a lot. Mr. These United Breaks take over, come over. Orange hair, fear the comb over. Here's another scare. Keep them hands in the air. Better not breathe. You dare not dare. Don't say nothing. Don't think nothing. Make America great again. The middle just love it. When he want to talk, walk y'all straight to them ovens. Human beings of color. Yeah, we be suffering. State of the Union. Shut the fuck up. Sorry ass motherfucker. Stay away from me. Shut the fuck up, sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, 
shut the fuck up. Sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up. Sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. Fucking game, I did. I mentioned his name. Operation 45, yeah, it's the same thing. Sounds like Berlin burning, same thing. History's a mystery if y'all ain't learning. In this clown show for real estate, bozo. Nazi cult 45, Gestapo. State of the Union, shut the fuck up. Sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up. Sorry ass motherfucker, stay away from me. State of the Union, shut the fuck up. And that was uh, Chuck D with his latest, his one from Duck Dojo. Got 12 years down and I still owe nine. Pops getting old, so now I'm doing double time. Prison life got changed, so my tears, yet I still cry. Concerned convicts look at me and they all sympathize. I'm trying to conceal and contain when I'm feeling inside. Recognize the consequences of how I'm living my life. Man, what I wouldn't give just to be by his side. Cause we only live once and there ain't no next time. I promise not to do tomorrow. What I could do now from this point on in my life, that's how I'm getting down. Realizing now's the time and place to make some changes. No more tears of hate, anger, fear, and frustration. Or walking with more issues than a mental patient. Like sitting with my pops, waiting for our Lord to take them. I give them to God and ask them for the strength to face them. Cause without faith, there ain't nothing else that could replace them. Hey, girl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Hey, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Imagine looking at the world through God's eyes. Discover the hidden meanings behind what you once loved and despised. What I want for myself is that what y'all want for me. There's so many trapped in confusion living a life of hypocrisy. As a man I stand unforgiven by my fellow men who say they believe as I do. Maybe that's God's plan to be an example of faith to those who all know me. Because I'm grounded in the spirit like an angel with a broke wing. My faith in God promises eternal life after death. So me and my pops will be together forever I guess. I suppose better off than those lacking sincerity. And I pray for the 
they souls as they take up space next to me. This is for my father. You know I know how you feel. Like I said before, I do what I can, and that's real. Write a letter or call just to check up on you. Never miss no opportunity to show you I love you. Hey, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Say, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Welcome home. Hit like the lotto and caught me a Diablo With a beach house living out in Cabo Getting high, popping bottles with a bunch of fly hoes They'll come and go just the same as the live blows Film it all cause they get raised with their eyes closed Patrol shots to make all the mommies wide slow If you know we got heat with your waste of time That was uh, Duck Doja was his can't stop the movement. Amen. Can't stop the uh, movement. Uh, proceeded there was a homage to his father, Earl. Never, never miss a chance to tell you how much I love you. Called Father's Day, that one was. And before that was Chuck D. And his latest State of the Union... State of the Union? Shut the plank up, right? State of the Union? What are you talking about? Uh, okay. We had... Oh, no. Let's see. I want to undo that. Let's listen to our Francesca. Here's Francesca Ramsey. Talking about racism. Uh, 
Who's going to win this incredibly important presidential election? Why does Decoded hate white people? Oh, yeah. I, I was going to get to that. Well, we don't. Bullshit. Hi guys and welcome to another episode of The Battening. Now there's a new video out from MTV Decoded. MTV Decoded is a show hosted by a woman named Francesca Ramsey. This show focuses heavily on race and is known for their catchphrase, Fuck white people! Now this week's episode of Decoded is going to focus on generalizations of white people, white stereotypes, and institutional and systemic racism. What Francesca is going to do is use an extremist victim complex to spiel that it is okay to judge an entire race based on preconceived and fabricated notions that all white people are racist, rather by real racism or systemic racism. She also believes that black people cannot be racist. Take a look. Racial prejudice is not cool, but when a person of color discriminates or stereotypes a white person because of their race, in the United States, they don't have the institutional power to back them up and say that those feelings are okay. Yes, they do, Francesca. It is called the First Amendment, and there is nowhere in the First Amendment that segregates freedom of speech by race. That is why you can get chants like this. Pigs in a blanket, fry white bacon! 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 And speeches like this. Oh, everything! So is mommy gonna fight for her love? Burning down shit ain't gonna help nothing! No burning down shit we need in our community! Take that shit to the suburbs! Burn that shit down! you get news coverage from major news corporations like this. It's holding a vigil marked by prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. With his sister calling for peace. Don't bring the violence here and the ignorance here. The media is chalked full of anti-white rhetoric. This is why sites like Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, and MTV capitalize on a trend of demeaning white people because it is now socially acceptable to rip on white people, yet if you say anything that's even factual about the black community or other minority communities, they label you as a racist, bigot, or xenophobe. For fuck's sake, Francesca, your entire show speaks out against stereotypes generalizations, cultural appropriations, and other racial bullshit rhetoric, yet you combat these issues by using white stereotypes and generalizations about white people in an attempt to smear white people for the justification of your own racial bias. There's overwhelming evidence that implicit racial bias is real, and institutional racism is still rampant in America and abroad today. Francesca, this is why people do not respect you. Show us one example of a law that discriminates against black people or minorities. You can't and you won't. One thing that I can show you is that Black Lives Matters, which is responsible for inciting many violent acts across the country, is defended by our president himself. I think the reason that the organizers used the phrase Black Lives Matters was not because they said they were suggesting nobody else's lives matter. Rather, what they were suggesting was there is a specific problem that is happening in the African American community that's not happening in other communities. And that is a legitimate issue that we've got to address. 
The problem in black communities that Obama should be talking about is that over 90% of black murders are at the hands of other black people. Instead of figuring out and attempting to fix the real reasons as to why this is happening, Obama just goes along with the false narrative that white people are holding black people down. One of the major reasons that is suspected of contributing to black on black crime is the fact that 72% of black children grow up in single parent households. You don't address these issues because they are damaging to your agenda. <sighs> okay, I've gotten off on a tangent. Let's get back to Francesca explaining why her racial bias against white people is okay. Whoa, okay, talking about oppression doesn't mean I hate white people. The problem is it's hard to get mad at systems and institutions instead of taking these conversations personally. When I criticize the school-to-prison pipeline, lack of police training, workplace discrimination, or our court system, some people don't want to hear it or think about it. And by some people, she means white people. Francesca, the reason nobody wants to listen to you about those subjects is that you are not an expert in any of them. You have a racial bias against white people that clouds your judgment on everything you talk about. A great example of this is this clip where you falsely explain why these men were shot by police. The list of do's and don'ts for black people continues to grow. Don't be mentally ill. Don't fall asleep on a couch. Look, don't carry a pill bottle. Don't use the stairs. Don't play with toy guns. Don't call the police for help. Well, don't have a broken taillight. Don't have an attitude. Don't get in a car accident. Don't buy an air rifle in Walmart. Don't ride in a police van. Don't sell loose cigarettes. Don't walk in the middle of the road, man. This is race baiting and you are 100% guilty of it. You should feel ashamed of yourself for instilling in young black minds that they could be killed for simply playing with a toy gun or walking down the street. Do you not see that what you are doing is harmful to the relations between police and the African-American community. It's people like you, the Huffington Post, and all of these other mainstream media outlets for instilling this exaggerated fear into young black minds, which has led to much higher rates of violence. So when you talk about why we don't want to hear you talk about race relations, this is why, Francesca. Let's use preschool, for example. In a study done by the Department of Education, black children make up 18% of the preschool population population, but represent almost half of all out-of-school suspensions. Basically, while a misbehaving white toddler might get time out, a black toddler is more likely to get sent home and have disciplinary action on their record. Now, on first glance, you can take a very shallow look at this problem and come to the conclusion that these teachers have a racial bias. But if you look back at the stat that I brought up earlier, that 72% of black children grow up in a single-parent household, you may start to see a correlation between this and the discipline of young children. Now, Asian parents have a lower separation rate than white parents. I could not find any stats on the disciplinary action rate between Asian children and white children, but I would go as far as to say that there is going to be a correlation between the separation rate of parents and the discipline of their children. For journalists who investigate these kinds of stats, they reach the conclusion that these suspensions are tied to teacher bias. Cool. I'm gonna go with stats. Next. This is a huge problem. Does it mean that all these preschool teachers are racist? Not explicitly so, but they have bias, just like all of us.
Yes, Franny, we know you have a racial bias. So let's check in with your feelings. Are you A, mad at the Department of Education for not training teachers better, B, mad at your state congressional representatives for not pushing for bigger education budgets, or C, mad at me for talking about this because it's easier to direct your anger towards someone making you feel guilty instead of being angry at the complicated as f world of institutional racism. If you chose C, please resist the urge to close your browser and instead keep listening. Well, this is actually a very complicated subject, and honestly, you nor I have the expertise to really tell anybody how to fix this issue. But to get back onto the point of the entire video, we can be mad at you for helping contribute to this racial divide that is separating our country. Also for your mocking of white people with this moronic white character that you've created. <laughs> Well, isn't that just convenient? Let's just ignore what the dictionary says. To make your normal moronic character seem a little bit smarter. Can you fucking imagine if it was a white person posting this who was doing a black impression? You might have noticed, nowhere in there did I say white people are the problem. Are you about to do that? Because I sense you're about to do that. So, the next time you have the urge to say, Francesca hates white people, please autocorrect to, Francesca hates the historical roots of oppression that have led to today's societal conditions which allow institutions with white leadership to systemically discriminate against people of color. So nowhere did you say that white people are the problem, followed by, white leadership systemically discriminates against people of color. You fucking asshole. We see right through you, Francesca. It's clear that people who get mad about discussions of racism aren't actually listening to the criticisms. Like how you said you don't watch the criticisms of your own videos? They aren't hearing the facts and stats. They aren't even directly disagreeing with research. Instead, they're disagreeing with the sentiment, things are bad for people of color and we need change. Why? Well, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, a white critical racial and social justice scholar, has described the discomfort some white people have towards talking about racism as white fragility. Yes, it must be that we're born with a genetic defect called white fragility. Since white people often grow up in environments where discussing race is seen as taboo, some react defensively when the topic of racism comes up. No. Our youth is dogmatically taught by people like you and other people in the media that white people talking about race is unacceptable thanks to their privilege. Dr. D'Angelo says this manifests itself as outward displays of emotions, such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. So being called a racist leads to arguments, ignoring the person who called you a racist, or leaving the situation altogether. I'm baffled, Francesca. Truly baffled. It's also hard to think about these issues on an institutional level, and because talking about racism automatically makes a lot of white people uncomfortable, they sometimes begin to think they're being personally attacked or blamed. Recent studies show that white Americans believe bias against white people is a bigger issue in our country than ever before. Well, gee, I wonder what could be producing that train of thought. Perhaps it's the constant onslaught of fuck white people articles and videos that are constantly being force-fed to the American public via MTV, Huffington Post, news stations, and even our president and candidate for president. This, however, is simply not true. Statistically, from mortgage lending to police brutality, the reality for white Americans tends to be way more positive than for black Americans and other people of color. So don't be mad at me. Be mad at the stats. Okay.
Okay, I'll look at the stats. Blacks committed 52% of homicides between 1980 and 2008, despite composing just 13% of the population. Across the same time frame, whites committed 45% of homicides while composing 77% of the population, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Those damn racist facts. A classic example is the bias associated with drug use. White people use drugs at similar rates as black people, but black people are much more likely to go to jail for drug usage because of the way we structure our policing practices. I will concede that point here. Inner cities are more commonly populated with black people and are typically policed heavier due to higher crime rates, higher drug usage, and higher populations. There's even bias in the political language we use to describe the issue. In the 80s, when crack became a huge problem, we had the war on drugs. But now with the prescription meds epidemic, which is largely affecting white communities, we're actually calling it what it is, an opioid epidemic. But when these issues are brought up, too often people accuse us of bias against white people. By refusing to engage with the actual issues, the people who shout the absurd accusation, you're racist against white people, are really just attempting to shut down the conversation. After that comment, I can't do any more of this. I can't take this seriously any longer. If you made it through the whole video, good job, I can't. I'm gonna end it here. And I'd like to thank everybody who watched this video and who watched my last video. This is all still a learning process for me and I hope the videos are getting better. It's an excruciating process doing all this animation. This is about hour nine or 10 that I've worked on this one video for. So I hope you guys all enjoyed it and I'll be back later on in the week. Oh, that was uh, Francesca Ramsey bringing up issues that are hard to talk about for a lot of white people and uh, therefore hard to include in the what's called the national conversation. I said a couple of times uh, that George Floyd has opened doors for us has opened doors for people who want justice and equality and uh, a decent life for everyone. And how do you do that, right? The country is in a crisis and people are going to need money. People are going to, workers are going to need money. Workers are going to need support from their government. Uh, okay, pardon me, got a phone call. Hello? Hello? Hello, Charlie? Hello, hello. Hello, Charlie. I can barely hear you. Okay, well, let me take it. How about that? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you better, Brother Bill. How you doing? I'm doing all right. <laughs> well, yeah. I want to thank you for calling up. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the person on the line is my brother, Charlie Morgan. There's a who's got his own show over in Well, I uh, want to thank Marin. you for having your show. So, tell me, how's it going? Uh, pretty good, you know. Uh, we're There's a delay going on here. Okay. All right, wait a minute. Let's see. Okay. Did that fix it? Well, uh, on the phone it fixes it. I don't know about your... Maybe I should turn... Yeah, maybe I should turn... Anyway, I'm enjoying your show. Okay. And uh, I'm uh, jealous because uh, I don't have a show right now. I'm with KWMR Radio, a very progressive, diverse uh, radio station in Point Reyes Station, uh, Bolinas and the San Geronimo Valley. But, um, yeah, your show sounds great, and I don't know if the audience knows that We've sort of been doing radio-type stuff together for, let's see, how old are we now? For eons uh, and eons. 65 years. <laughs> we were on KPFA for a while. That's true. I'd forgotten that. We overcame that. <laughs> uh, and I think your show is fantastic. And uh, I, you know, when I do a show, I try to sneak in I do a radio I do a music show it's called musical variety and uh, I guess I told you that I snuck in every show one of your labor cards oh you oh, and yeah. uh, Joe Sanchez did these great labor cards that have drawn uh, compliments from everybody I was just talking to cousin Denny the other day and he, he was talking about him but um, that when you do one of your introductions and you say labor, you say to the audience, I'm talking about you. And uh, I think that's a good thing to remind people of because sometimes they think, you know, they have their job and their separate situation. And then, oh, yeah, there's labor. You know, there's right. those people that go around uh, – marching and talking about uh, getting, you know, fair wages and uh, fair working, safe working conditions. And uh, <clears throat> it's all it's all of us. I mean, like you say, if you don't have a, a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just hope that people realize that and, um, you know, another thing about the themes that I've been hearing on your show are a lot of them, the speakers are really uh, saying kind of indirectly, let's not get separated as working people. You know, let's not get turned against each other by the, you know, the Donald Trumps and uh, the other loudmouths. 
that like to, uh, you know, separate people. He's he's all doing it internationally too. He's trying to separate China from the United States, and uh, we're all in this together, folks. You know, yeah. we can't be turned against each other culturally or racially or on a working level. We've all got to uh, keep keep together. Uh, lest we be divided and, uh, you know, taken over. Um, and, you know, you and I come from a, we come from a tradition of kind of farm labor Democrats from Minnesota. And uh, I'll never forget the time we were going to go see Peter Pan. <laughs> right. On Market Street in the city. And, uh, you and I started running off the streetcar, and Mom said, stop, Mom, and we froze, because when Mom says stop like that, you stop. <laughs> and uh, we said, why, you know, uh, and she said, because we're not scabs. And we looked on our arms for cuts and stuff like that, and we said, well, we don't have any scabs. And she, right in the middle of the sidewalk on Market Street, right outside this theater, because there was a picket line there, she sat down and ran down, you know, the facts of life about labor and why people go on strike. And um, I think that we were pretty lucky to have that kind of guidance. Well, I certainly agree. Yeah. I certainly agree with you. That's the kind of thing, you know that stays with you your whole life you know some things you hear 20 50 90 times and you can't remember remember them well but something like that is something that really stays with you yeah it's applicable to uh, real yeah. everyday life so um any any uh word about when you guys can reopen and we can hear uh well. musical verite on Tuesday we're kind nights. of tied to uh, the coronavirus thing. I mean, when somebody finds a, a solution for that, uh, uh, I'll probably be able to go back on the air. I'm trying like heck to learn how to do my own show. Uh, they're trying to give us lessons so that we can just uh, send a file in to the station. Oh. Oh, and actually have our uh, our shows played, but right now that's not happening, and it's it's quite frustrating because, as you know, you and I are, you know, we're performing artists. We always have been <laughs> from the time we were so young, and uh, to not be able to do your thing is uh, is kind of frustrating. And there's a lot of power in being a a programmer. I mean. What you're doing right now is spreading the word about labor, and um, I know you're probably going to have that show where the moderator talks about what happened in labor yeah. that week. That's um, coming right up. That's right. It's really, uh, it's, it's, to be a radio programmer is really, uh, I mean, it's a powerful thing, and uh, it's very rewarding. But, um, you know, I don't want to keep you if you want to okay. play your show, that other uh, that other show that you play. But uh, 
Anyway, uh, thanks for calling. It's great. Uh, love you, brother Bill. And um, our sister's birthday is July 25th. I just thought I'd remind you that. <laughs> okay. And uh, anyway, I'm enjoying your show, and I like to catch it as often as I can. And I really honor Mutiny Radio. It really is a people's radio station. I don't see how you guys get away with saying some of the words that you say. But uh, as long as nobody complains, that's cool, you know. Yeah. But uh, let's keep on keeping on. Okay. And where we can, uh, you know, get our comments in about not being divided as working people. And uh, I'll just leave it up to you now. Okay. Well, I just want to add real quick is that by you going out, you know, and and working in a radio station and becoming a programmer, all of a sudden it seemed it made it more more uh, possible in my mind, so that when the chance came up to join Mutiny Radio, I was ready for it. I, you know, I had, oh good, I knew it could be done. <laughs> well, you're a natural. <laughs> okay, Charlie. Um, all right, love you. And talk to you soon. My love to your audience who are listening, and remember, folks, don't let yourself get divided up as working people, and I will say over and out. Over and out, Chess. All Bye-bye. right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Okay, and that was... Uh Brother Charlie Morgan, a programmer at uh, KWMR in West Marin. Uh, As you heard, they've been silenced now because of the coronavirus, hoping for uh, some kind of, uh, I guess, miracle virus like all of us are. I would like to point out something, though. We talk a lot on this show about unions and specifically about labor unions and uh, workplace issues. But the concept of a union is much wider than that. The concept of a union is a bunch of people working together, even though they might not know each other or even know that they're working together, to make something happen, to make their lives better to make the lives of the nation better. So what's needed, as Charlie pointed out, is unionism, the way people got through the horrible days of the Great Depression. Government did what it could, finally, when when Roosevelt (coughs) came in. But what got people through it was being with one another, helping one another, sharing with one another, giving to one another. That's what got people through. Families got people through. Communities got people through. It's it's more fashionable now to look around and say, well, government should do this and do that. Yes, that's absolutely true. But first of all, we can be with one another. We can wear masks so we don't get each other sick. 
we can stay six feet away out of respect. At any rate, the whole idea of a union, let's play a, a union song here. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger from Radio Labor. It's important to remember our past, but only because it helps us face the present to make the future, and the future's always coming. Here's Benny Esguera and gang with Solidarity Forever, the new millennium version. Uh, no more division, no, we're bringing a new vision, and it's just in time from ashes we get birth, a new tradition, solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor. Now we're resurrecting it, one century later, keep our feet fixed on the past, in order to stay rooted in our minds, eye on tomorrow, so that today we get through this, so that one day we're victorious, so just gather now, come near. Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear, we give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line, those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious rhymes, those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost, lost only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported. When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it. We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided. They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest. They're thinking that it's clever, but we know we're something better. Solidarity forever. Now jobs are disappearing, and all we're ever hearing is pay a lot more, get paid a little less. Work a little harder, then work a little longer, but we're taking it no longer. We're decided we're uniting, cause together we are stronger. The union's got a back, CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact. So we're making a choice and we're making some noise. We're walking with poise and we're raising our voice. We're singing. of Solidarity Forever was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Stopping student debt, universal unemployment benefits, Caring about the homeless? Francesca American politicians and pundits are suddenly taking all those things very seriously. Like, 
If you happen to be coming back from a 12-day silent meditation retreat with Jared Leto, you might think, wow, this Bernie president? Am I the Joker again? No, honey, it's a pandemic. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and yeah, this is where I pay rent. And though Bernie Sanders may not be president, today we're looking at six ways coronavirus is proving him right. Welcome to another season of News Broke. If you had told me back then that four years into the Trump administration, we would be filming under quarantine from our homes, I would have been like, yep, that checks out. Has he been impeached? Of course. What we're going through is so surreal and scary. And since everyone is stuck at home anyway, we also thought it was the perfect time to bring back Newsbroke and look at a number of aspects of this moment with a skeleton crew, uh, no animations, and my cat running camera. Good job, baby. She's an indoor. Coronavirus has rapidly done a number of things. Besides spread and take lives, it's also somehow made President Trump really jealous. It's almost like he's mad another younger, hotter pathogen has gone more viral than he has. It has also exposed deep structural problems in our healthcare system, our economy, and our political systems. Coronavirus is like a black light shining on our econo-lodge of a country. The bed seems sturdy, but you do not want to see what's holding it together. There are problems that Bernie Sanders has been sounding the alarm on for decades, which are all now painfully on display, just like my bookshelf of Ikea boxes is painfully on display. I have limited closet space. So let's look at six ways that the coronavirus has shown that Bernie Sanders might be onto something. That guy should run for president one day. <laughs> the obvious first is healthcare. Coronavirus has hit the US when 30 million of us still don't have health insurance, and half a million of us go bankrupt every year just trying to pay for medical costs, even with insurance. Bernie Sanders has long advocated for a national health care system, Medicare for All, which covers all people with no out-of-pocket costs. It ends all premiums. It ends all co-payments. It ends the absurdity of deductibles. And that has been met from both Republicans and Democrats with that all-too-familiar question. You know the one. How are we going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for many of these things? They don't Pander. know who's going to pay for it. How are we going to pay for it? Doesn't show enough about how we're going to pay for it. Um, duh, the same way we pay for most healthcare expenses in this country. Go fund me. Enter COVID-19. Tens of thousands of Americans suddenly need rapid testing, hospital beds, and sometimes respirators. And the richest country in the world hasn't been able to provide them. Healthcare workers themselves are not only in short supply, but so is their basic protective gear, like face masks, to safely treat patients. And that's to say nothing of the magazine selection in hospital waiting rooms. It's just the same three issues of Highlights Magazine. I've already read The Dog Who Helps Save Whales. <laughs> Drivel. Our massively privatized system is clearly not designed to handle a national crisis like this, and that's dawning on everyone, which is why we're now hearing a strangely familiar tune from a far too familiar face. Earlier this week, I met with the leaders of health insurance industry who have agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments, extend insurance coverage to these treatments, and to prevent surprise medical billing. Okay, but how are we gonna pay for it, right? Anyone? Weird. 
In fact, coronavirus is giving some corporate media pundits ideological whiplash. In the space of three weeks, I've gone from asking questions like, how do we pay for certain policies to retweeting tweets from the likes of Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? Oh, Lady Chatterley, you naughty girl. <laughs> what a difference a doomsday makes. It's almost like when millions of people suddenly need urgent care and could infect us all, the money is there. Coronavirus is kind of like if poverty became contagious, suddenly everyone's like, a poor just sneezed on me. Oh God, oh my 401k is burning up. But just in case you thought the US has learned its healthcare lesson, rest assured, we haven't. Uh, in fact, what Trump said about COVID-19 treatment being covered, that's not actually true. Yes, Congress passed the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, which did include free testing, but not treatment. That's why private health insurance companies aren't covering the cost of treatment, only the test, if you can get one. And at this point, health facilities are guarding them like bridge trolls. The test is free, but answer me these questions three. Patients are already getting a taste of how much it costs to survive coronavirus. For one Boston woman, it was almost $35,000. And her case isn't that unique. A new study by the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that the average cost of COVID-19 treatment for someone with employer insurance and without complications would be about $9,763. Someone whose treatment has complications may see bills about double that, over $20,000. Oh, and if you have insurance, all that out-of-network, in-network billing maze that so many of us know about, that's still in place. So it's a good thing that we have nothing but time in quarantine. Medical debt from surviving coronavirus will further strap Americans during what could be an economic depression as a result of the pandemic. Before this all happened, Bernie Sanders warned about the crippling cost of medical debt and called to drop all of it. That was in addition to his calls to drop $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Now that millions are out of work, that radical idea of dropping debt isn't all that radical anymore. New York's Attorney General just suspended collections on both medical and student debt in response to the pandemic. Sure, it's only for 30 days, but that's just enough time to pack your bags and get a one-way flight to Costa Rica. They're cheap. Don't go there. Never return. Coronavirus has exposed just how little job security workers in this country have. Four in 10 hourly workers don't have paid sick leave. And overall, the less money you make, the less likely you are to have it. Back in 2015, Bernie was a co-sponsor of the Family and Medical Leave Insurance Bill and spoke some pretty prescient words. We have a situation where people in this country, by the millions, have no uh, guaranteed uh, sick leave. And especially in areas like the food industry, sick people are handling our food. And the reason for that is that uh, they do not have any paid sick leave. Yeah. Restaurant workers not having sick leave is truly the cruelest twist of consumerist capitalism. COVID or not, illnesses inevitably get passed to the customers. If you think about it, restaurant owners are basically outsourcing the diarrhea. And that's the real trickle-down economics. In our current crisis, restaurant workers and other tipped workers, hourly wage earners, gig workers, domestic workers, and farm workers have all been hit the hardest. Shifts are disappearing, workers are being let go, and if they or their loved ones get sick, most of them can't take time off. 
Bernie has supported legislation for those workers in particular through his Workplace Democracy Plan, which among other things has sought protections for Uber and Lyft drivers, saying companies shouldn't be able to misclassify workers as independent contractors or label them as a supervisor, and calls for just cause legislation which would prohibit employers from firing workers for anything other than their performance on the job, which would mean a pandemic wouldn't be just cause to fire you. But not finishing your wet food and only eating the dry is. She's fired. And wouldn't you know it, with COVID-19, Congress has now mandated paid sick and family leave as part of their emergency relief package. So you can take up to two weeks off and you will be paid your full wage and you can take up to three months off and be paid two thirds of your pay. For people who work these gig jobs, independent contractors, they get a tax credit of the equivalent amount. So that's a sea change. I mean, workers have been calling for this for years and we finally got it. Yeah, okay, let's temper the excitement because it actually only covers 48% of the workforce and also offers tax credits to companies for providing sick leave, which is like, Insane, right? Like, why are we rewarding companies for doing the right thing? That's like making a priest a bishop because he didn't touch children. Some businesses have even taken it upon themselves to change their paid sick leave policies in light of coronavirus. And CEOs voluntarily changing their sick leave policies is the biggest indicator that they were probably trash to begin with. Like McDonald's, which usually only gives five days paid time off for hourly employees. That's one day off for Christmas, one day off for New Year's, one day off when you get your hair stuck in the McFlurry mixer, and two days off to fix it! Of course, none of those concessions are coming from the goodness of these CEOs' hearts. In fact, another Bernie prophecy that's coming true is corporate greed. McDonald's, in fact, secretly lobbied the Trump administration to not expand paid sick leave benefits for workers any further. And man, would I love to have been a fly on the wall during that negotiation. Mr. President, it would be a shame if we had to discontinue the filet of fish. Stop right there. Who do you want me to kill? Then there's Bernie's line, you know the one about the millionaires, millionaires and, and the billionaires. billionaires. It can sometimes get tiresome, but you really start to see the depths of billionaires' greed in times like this. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, a man who made more money today than your entire bloodline, agreed to finally give workers two weeks paid sick leave for those infected with coronavirus, but not before he refused to shut down factories in Spain and Italy where five workers there were diagnosed with it. Four senators, including Bernie Sanders, wrote a letter to Bezos imploring him to consider covering the costs of coronavirus testing for his workers at fulfillment centers and at least give them enough break time to wash their hands, which apparently is a big ask considering workers there don't even have enough time to go to the bathroom. Let's remember, Bezos is a guy who makes the salary of an average Amazon employee every nine seconds, but they can't take breaks to pee? Man, there's already a class war. Workers are just losing it. Now everyone's talking about social distancing. Well, no one is more socially distant than Bernie Sanders. He doesn't even like wishing people a happy birthday. I'm not good at pleasantries. If you have your birthday, I'm not gonna call you up to congratulate you so you love me and you write nice things about me. I've been amazed at how many people respond to, happy birthday, oh, Bernie, thanks so much for calling. You know, it works, it, it's just not my style. Bernie already treats every social situation like he could possibly contract COVID-19. Birthdays, New Year's, even Passover. Yeah, 
I'll uh, I'll come to the Seda as soon as Elijah shows up. He never shows up. We're all in this together. We've heard that from many people when talking about coronavirus, everyone from the head of the World Health Organization to Madonna in a bathtub full of rose petals to Vice President Mike Pence. We're all in this together. And by this, I mean the ark that I've been building in my yard, which will whisk us away from God's plague. Now I need two of every straight animal. Not you, flamingos. There's no question that we are all in this together when it comes to an international health crisis. But whether or not you survive it absolutely depends on your privilege and wealth. Because from our healthcare to our jobs to how we get our food, the U.S. isn't designed for solidarity, collectivity, or the common good. It's designed for a few people to get rich, get excellent healthcare, or have job stability. The rest of us scrape by. And Bernie Sanders has spent his political career pointing that out. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us we have socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor and for other people. And when it comes to that concept of true solidarity, it's kind of been Bernie's guiding principle for years. What I believe in and what my spirituality is about is that we're all in this together. That I think it is not a good thing to believe that as human beings we can turn our backs on the suffering of other people. Whatever you think about him, Bernie's ideas are speaking to our current crisis like never before. In part because what we're going through as a country is an acceleration of what's been happening for decades. It's a bull speed up. So it's up to us. Will the U.S. come around to recognizing and fixing the basic flaws in these systems? And can we afford not to? You guys, this is Newsbroke back in quarantine. Like this video, share this video, subscribe, do all the things, tell all the people, and we will see you sooner than later. I mean, honestly. That was uh, Francesca Fiorentini <clears throat> pointing out how prescient Bernie Sanders is, how important it would be if we had Bernie Sanders in the White House. How the world would change. Waiting right now for a call from a Capitol correspondent. And we'll see if he calls up right now. Um, this is the B. And I want to talk about our credos on this show. There are certain credos we have. Things that we believe that have been expressed succinctly and well. By someone else. Okay, let's see. Here's one. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. This one about labor history and labor studies and what the labor movement has done. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northwest. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. 
We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for. By working people. By people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs, Utah says. Damn it. No root, no fruit. Immigrants, immigrant people. Can I tell you a secret? Jesse Memmer says. I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit is just for the 1% convincing us working poor to blame another set of the working poor. Keep us divided. Blame them. Blame those people who work so cheap for the fact that we're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they are all poor is due to vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Oh, you know, you always stand around, someone says, I'm not that into politics. So you're just not that into politics. Well, your your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. (laughs) I'd say it's time to get into politics. So let me see if I got this right, a woman says. I can't get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant until six weeks. I'm not allowed to tie my tubes because once again, it's someone else's rules what I do with my body. So they cut funding to Planned Parenthood. I can no longer get a cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. Cut the funding to CHIP, WIC, and food assistance, making it harder for single mothers to take care of the child they were forced to have. Hello? You force women to have babies and then you cut all the programs to help them raise their children. I think I've got it, she says. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body. My rights as a woman just aren't that And finally, Poet Laureate of the Left. (laughs) One of them, anyway. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the Nation. 
pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well fed. Pity the nation, oh pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. Sweet land of liberty. Okay. Then you hold me in your, your arms And I think I can take it one more time I think I can take it Chris Rock with James Baldwin's message to his nephew. Damn. Don't really appreciate following, having to follow the heartthrob, but um, <laughs> I will try my best. Okay. Uh, this is uh, originally written by uh, James Baldwin. James Baldwin. And um, I'll give it a shot. Dear James, I have begun this letter five times and torn it up five times. And I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. I have known both of you all your lives and have carried your daddy in my arms and on my shoulders, kissed him and spanked him and watched him learn to walk. I don't know if you've known anybody from that far back, if you've 
loved anyone that long, first as an infant, then as a child, then as a man, you gain a strange perspective on time and a human pain and effort. Other people cannot see what I see. Whenever I look into your father's face, for behind your father's face, as it is today, are all those other faces which were his. Let him laugh and I see a cellar. Your father does not remember, and a house he does not remember, and I hear his present laughter. His laughter is a child. Let him curse, and I remember him falling down a cellar steps and howling, and I remember with, with pain his tears which my hand or your grandmother's hand so easily wiped away. But no one's hand can wipe away those tears he sheds invisibly. Today, which one hears in his laughter and in his speech and in his songs. I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. I know which is much worse is this, is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for, which I, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can be indeed, one can be indeed, but one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death. For this is what most of mankind has been best at since we have heard of war. Remember, I said most of mankind, but it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Now, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions not far removed from those described for us by Charles Dickens in the London of more than a hundred years ago. I hear the chorus of the innocent screaming, no, this is not true. How bitter are you? but I am writing this letter to you to try to tell you something about how to handle them. For most of them do not yet really know that you exist. I know the conditions under which you were born, for I was there. Your countrymen were not there and haven't made it yet. Your grandmother was also there. And no one has ever accused her of being bitter. I suggest that the innocent check with her. She isn't hard to find. The countrymen don't know that she exists, though she has been working for them all of their lives. Well, you were born, here you came, something like 15 years ago. And though your father and mother and grandmother, <laughs> looking about the streets, through which they were carrying you, staring at the walls into which they brought you, had every reason to be heavy-hearted, yet they were not. For here you were, Big James, named for me. You were a big baby. 
I was not. Here you were to be loved, to be loved, baby, hard at once and forever to straighten you against the loveless world. Remember that. I know how black it looks today for you. It looked black that day too, yes. You were trembling. We have not stopped trembling yet. But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we loved you. And for the sake of your children and your children's children, yes. This innocent country set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. Let me spell out precisely what I mean by that. For the heart of the matter is here and the crux of my dispute with my country. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you face because you were black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be settled. You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were not expected to make peace. Sorry, you were expected to make peace with mediocrity. Wherever you have turned, James, in your short time on this earth, you have been told that you could go, you could you've been told where you could go and what you could do and how you could do it and where you could live and whom you could marry. I know your countrymen do not agree with me here. And here, and I hear them saying, you exaggerate. They do not know Harlem. And I do. So do you. Take no one's word for anything, including mine, but trust your experience. Know whence you came. If you know whence you came, there's really no limit to where you can go. The details and symbols of your life have deliberately been constructed to make you believe what white people say about you. Please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. That was uh, Chris Rock reading James Baldwin's classic letter to my nephew where he sets down clearly that the sin of white society is its innocence that right next door to us all these years our fellow countrymen and women have been catching hell and somehow we never believed it okay well that's about all this week for labor and love. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, 
You're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. As they said, it's all about global solidarity, and that solidarity implies that it's not just within the workplace, it's at the society at large where we need our solidarity and not to be left disunited. Throw the tyrant and his court. This is the bee signing off. Good work and good luck. And have a good week. Coming right up is Scott Walker and his show, Flat Black Plastic. So hang around. See you next Saturday. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Anti-Trump is the antivirus, or antibody, to the Trump virus. We're a global alliance of humans standing up against the Trump brand. Antitrump.com started four years ago on March 19th, 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better world. Nobody thought it was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old. He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless, 
and without the most basic health care systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com. Welcome to Strictly Bad Vibes, your personal complaint department. Um, what, what the hell are we talking about? Um, whiny people and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why do we do this? Why, why are we doing this? <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such horse shit on the fucking train. And he was yelling, he was like, move it, bitch, move it, bitch, and, uh, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm just not, I'm not moving it, you know? I've arrived, why should I move? I don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches. 115-340-1976, and it does not spell anything. 115-340-1976. One nine
Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh on your tits